Welcome to the Raise with Jesus podcast. You've got your study Saturday for March 9th, 2019. Dr. Wade Johnston and his topic, his speech at the Point of Grace campus ministry, The Ethic of Freedom. Here goes. We'll be looking at uh, what I like to call the ethic of freedom or how Christians, and, and, and especially here, um, those of us who are Lutheran Christians, how we can approach this, this field of ethics. I teach ethics here at the college. Um, ethics obviously entails a lot of things. We, we go through classical philosophy. We'll get into bioethics. But I want to look specifically today at the basic framework for what it is to be a Christian and how a Christian will approach um, ethics. Eth- ethics is something that's different than morals. Uh, morals are rules or customs. So, for instance, if we were to say to you when you go outside, don't walk on the grass in the quad. Well, it might be a very natural question to ask. Why? Ethics addresses the why, the justification for the rule. So we have all kinds of rules that we sometimes just have. So mom or dad, when you were a kid, might have said to you at some point, because I said so. And uh, you probably hated that. And then you get to be a parent, and it's great. I do it all the time, right? So because I said so. Sometimes there's going to be, for the Christian, uh, a a time where there's just a because I said so. God has said something. Uh, He's not felt the need to explain himself further. There's a because I said so. Um, But there's also times where Christians aren't going to necessarily have an explicit Bible verse that's just a because I said so, but Christians are going to wrestle with what is it to live an ethical life, Um, how do we best serve our neighbor, things like this. And so today, the goal is just to give a framework for that. Um, I'm going to try to keep to the time to do that well. I never know when I use PowerPoint how that will go. PowerPoint's a dangerous thing. I get slides up there, and I think I'll spend this many minutes on it. And we never know what quite is going to happen. So um, I don't, if I'm boring, you just fall asleep, and, uh, and I'll take that as a sign. Uh, but we have there, here is this tagline, uh, life in a world given back to us. And I'll kind of close at the end with this, um, together with another theology professor here, um, and then a, uh, someone who's done their grad work in philosophy and a, a theology grad here. Um, I do a podcast where we like to look at a lot of issues Um, fields, disciplines, have mathematicians, physics professors, stuff on, um, from the perspective of how can a Christian look at these things and not necessarily do physics better than a non-Christian or do math better than a non-Christian, but view these things as gifts and vehicles for how they can serve their neighbor as well. So this is something that hopefully for those of you who are studying um, can lead you to step back and think about uh, whatever you're majoring in, whatever you're hoping to do, not only as a career, um, but we'll get to vocationally as, a, as how God might use you as a channel to bless your, your neighbor. And so we'll be digging into that a little bit as we go. When we get to the beginning, if we're talking ethics from a Lutheran perspective, and uh, you have a Lutheran theology prof up here, so that's where I'm coming from, right? Uh, it's going to have to be grounded in justification, which means it's going to be backwards to every other ethical system. Almost every other ethical system is built upon working towards being virtuous or righteous, right? Um, So Aristotle is going to say that you need to habituate virtue. You figure out what virtue is, and then you keep doing it until you enjoy it. And so you're going to get right the yoi or oi, or you could say eudaimonia, however you want to pronounce your Greek. Just say it quickly if you're not sure. That's what I do. Um, Or you're going to have religious ethical systems that are built upon how to become right with God or please God so that he will then love you or reward you. 
Christianity is going to turn that on its head, and you'll see, um, I have a painting I always enjoy. Some, sometimes people don't like it because Christ is resting on his skull. Um, but this picture of, of God who became man uh, to overcome Adam's death, or the death that Adam had brought into the world, um, to overcome the sin that we now inherit so that we might be declared righteous in his sight. So that word justification is one of the most important words in the Bible, but it's one we oftentimes don't know or we forget. But it's to be declared not guilty. It is a courtroom word. And that's a presentation for another day. I'll do my whole Detroit trial that I do in class. But it's to be declared not guilty for Christ's sake. And so uh, Christian ethics, gospel ethics, begin not with the desire to become righteous, but with having become, having been declared righteous in Christ. So Christian ethics are going to be by nature baptismal. They rest in living as who we are as baptized child, children of God. God doesn't say, do this to be my child. God says, you are now my child. And then we learn to live and walk as what God has declared us to be. And so one of the books we use in class is... Um, the Ethics of Martin Luther, which is a, a, a nice book. Um, lots of people will say, well, Martin Luther didn't have ethics. Um, I mean, not that he was unethical, but he didn't have an ethical system, I mean. Um, but it looks at um, how Lutheran theology can come together regarding ethics. And so Althaus says everything the Christian does presupposes that he or she is justified. An illustration I like to use, and some of you have heard before, is if you think about your own parents, or better yet, think about the day when you are parents. If you already are parents, well, then this shouldn't be that hard to do. Um, hopefully, you never felt like you had to do this or that so that your parents would love you. And hopefully, as parents, we're not raising our children in a way that they feel like they have to do this or that so that they so that we will love them, right? Rather, we want them to be confident in our love. That's what being an infant as a toddler is all about, right? Toddlers, you're going to forgive more than you'll ever forgive. They hate you, they this, you're the worst, whatever else, you know. I never asked to be born, and maybe you can say I didn't either, right? Uh, <clears throat> but uh, this is, um, right, you learn early on that your parents hopefully love you. You get confident in that love. And so maybe you even get to the point where you want to do things for your parents because they love you. And I like to use the illustration of maybe you surprise them with breakfast in bed, right? Salmonella on a tray. And uh, your parents know that they're going to have to clean the kitchen. It's a huge mess. It's probably very dangerous to eat whatever you've brought them. But they rejoice because they recognize your love and they love you in return. So the Christian is going to live not to gain God's love, but in God's love and the confidence of faith. So the Christian's conscience, good conscience, is rooted not in his or her own virtue, although when we sin, our conscience ought to be bothered. It's problematic if it isn't. But it's in the appeal of a good conscience that God gives us through our baptism and in Christ. Uh, as Christians, we clearly teach that we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone, as James tell us, tells us. Faith without works is dead, right? So faith will live through works. It is an active thing. I'm not alive because I'm breathing necessarily, right? But if I stop breathing, I'm not going to be alive for very long. 
we would say living people breathe, right? But you don't, I bet when you get up in the morning, if you have a to-do list, you don't have breathe on there. Unless it's like one of those inspiring shirts or something that people have, you know. But um, it's just a reflexive part of who you are. And so for the Christian, the Christian's faith will live and works this reflective, spontaneous thing that will, this, and spontaneous there doesn't mean that you won't ever plan a good work. You might plan breakfast in bed for your parents. It just means spontaneous in the sense of it's not coerced or forced. Right? Um, so Galatians 2, 20 and 21 is a helpful passage when we approach um, ethics from a Christian standpoint. Paul there, and Galatians is just a great letter, right? Paul gets in, those of you who have had Pauline epistles with me, you know I get excited at this. Um, Paul gets, what, like nine verses in before he's, who's bewitched you? You guys are nuts. Who, you know, this, he's, he's, he's concerned. Um, and he's going to get to Galatians 2 and remind them what the Christian life is rooted in. And so uh, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now this reorients me as a Christian. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness, and now what's righteousness here? Right? Righteousness, and I realize you guys have all had classes today, and I had classes today, and I had a faculty meeting as well, and meetings are, are like about as low on my totem pole of things that I want to go to. Um, so I'm not going to put you on the spot, but if you have stuff, feel free to raise your hand. Um, but what is righteousness, right? It's to be not guilty in God's sight. It's righteousness and justice are come from the same word. So to have a right standing with God through faith. Christ's righteousness is now given to us. Um, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So if we were looking to ethics for how to become righteous in God's sight, then Christ died for no purpose is what that means. Right? If it were something that is you, you gain righteousness in God's sight like points in you know, whatever game, I don't know, by, by, by labors, by works, um, then Christ died for no purpose, Paul is fairly clear about. Passage some of you may know from catechism, because this is like a really easy one to teach for pastors, right? Go-to passage, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, God's undeserved love. Grace, the idea in Latin, this we get this word favor, dei. It's how God looks at me in Christ. Luther once said, you have the God you see. Apart from faith, if you, you think you have a wrathful God, you have a wrathful God. Through faith in Christ, you see a God of mercy. So grace is how God looks at me in Christ. Uh, he looks on me mercifully and with love. And this is not your own... By the way, through faith, what is faith there? Um, sometimes we, we give with one hand and take away with another. We talk about faith and how great it is, and we're not saved by works, but then we turn faith into a work, right? You ever like talk to someone who's uh, depressed or despairing or, or struggling with their faith, and you say, well, believe more. What terrible advice. And like, yeah, I never thought of that, you know. Um, no, if you want them to believe more, what do you need to do? You need to root them in the gospel of Christ. Faith is in Christ. And so faith is the beggar's hand. And this is not like the beggar's hand. You know, you go to a Brewers game, and there's Miller Park, and everybody's tailgating, and all the parking's right there. you got to go to a Tigers game, go to a Comerica Park, some people are parking here, some are there. You go along the way and you've got the beggar who's like playing drums and dancing. That not, faith is not that beggar's hand. He's doing something. 
It's when you're walking and you've got the little deserted storefront, and if you didn't happen to look at the right time, you wouldn't even see the guy there with palsied hand, and you're not even sure if he's alive, and maybe he's got a cup, or maybe better yet, he doesn't even, and you've got to put the money in there and close his fingers on it. Right? That's what God's Spirit does through the Word. Um, so faith is not simply something I conjure up. Not, it is the gift of God, uh, and this is how God wants us to view not only our righteousness, but the world. Like you on Christmas morning when Grandma wanted to watch you open your present, and maybe you just ripped it open, and supposing Grandma didn't mess up that year and give you underwear or you know, whatever the case. Imagine she gave you what you wanted, what you had been waiting for, and the, you're just throwing the wrapping paper up, and then you run off to play with it, and what did Mom have to say? Thank Grandma. But Grandma was almost secretly happy you didn't even think to thank her because you were so excited, and she delighted in how you delighted in the gift. And that is how God is when, when he sees us delight in his good gifts to us as well. Um, so it's not a result of work so that no one may boast in their salvation. It's something that's received. For And here we get to now the ethical standpoint, how we're going to live now. Um, for we are his workmanship... Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, and here we like to prepare super awesome works, right? And I, I'm not making fun of mission trips. I am a little bit. I'm sorry. How does I'm Pastor Sheffield? But, you know, sometimes we think, I'm going to go to this place and I'm going to play soccer with the locals. And I'm going to, you know, do this and that. And God is going to be so pleased with my super work. And you know what? It is a good thing. Go on a mission trip. Right? I'm not I'm pro-missions. You can write that down. But we sometimes forget God has put all sorts of great works in front of us in our daily life, too. Whether it's our roommate who just needs someone to listen. Whether it's sitting down and studying for class so you're prepared to serve as a mask of God later in your vocation. Um, it's taking time to breathe. Right? Uh, that God has prepared in advance for us. And those works are not always glossy and they don't always make it into magazines or whatever the case may be. Yet there's still opportunities God has given us to show love. And so we don't want to rank works and we'll get later into diaper changing and where that falls. This is way too small to read. But I want to tell you a story. This is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. Some of you have heard this numerous times. Like I said, I don't know why you're doing this to yourself and coming, but uh, you did, so deal with it, right? Mark 5, great chapter, one of the best chapters in the New Testament. And uh, Jesus is in a Gentile region. We know this is Gentile because they got all kinds of pigs. And you weren't supposed to have a bunch of pigs, right, in Judaism. And there's an interesting history to that. But that's another lecture, too. But so he sails and he comes to this region and he's gonna, um, he comes to this Gentile region and he comes up on shore and the first person that meets him is, and this is immediately, this guy's just there. Now Mark says immediately for everything, but this guy just shows up. A man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore. What did that mean? They had been trying to bind him for a while. That's different. You don't normally just tie, you know, there's not like a room on campus where we just bind people who are acting up or whatever. I don't know, maybe there is campus ministry knows it. They haven't told me. Um, we'd probably get in trouble for that. Um, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. 
but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. He always crying out, cutting himself with stones, self-harming. And he comes to Jesus and falls at his feet. And you know what this is? This is the first time someone makes a really clear confession of who Christ is in all of Mark's gospel. One of the themes of Mark's gospel is Christ confessed by sinners. And this guy says, what are, you, what are you here for? What do you have to do with me? I know who you are. And he's got all these demons. Jesus says, who are you? And he says, my name is Legion. And so uh, these demons don't want to go back to hell. And so they, uh, they say, well, just send us into that herd of pigs. And uh, this is just great stuff, right? You, you have to start picturing this. Picture this in your head. And so he go, the demons go into this herd of pigs. And so... He gives permission. Enter the pigs in the herd, numbering about 2,000. In my vicar year, I lived in Madison, outside Madison, on a pig farm. One of the members of the church had two houses and one of the houses. So we were right next to the pigs. And um, pigs are terrifying creatures if you're ever around them. Right? They'll eat about anything. Uh, you know, I'm not advising this, but if you ever do have to get rid of a body, um, I think feeding it to pigs would be about as good a way as you could go. But um, don't do that, right? <laughs> Anti-murder. Write that down, Chevy. But, um, but they scream all night, and I remember my wife trying to get used to that. It didn't bother me. I'm from Detroit. So, um, but, uh, you know, it sounds like there's murders happening. What's going on? And uh, they're unclean, but 2,000 of them rush down into the sea, and they drown. Can you imagine the sounds of that? Can you imagine the sight where there are little, little village boys jumping from floating pig to floating pig? And Jesus wrecked the economy. He completely demolished the local economy. And they come to him and they say, please leave. And who shows up on the scene? And he was, as he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And, uh, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you vocation. You don't have to leave. You don't have to travel with me to follow me. You can serve me here. And so when I teach this account, I like to say he was the only sane man in town. Would you have called it based on how it began? And notice... And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been legion, sitting there clothed. Why would they notice that? If you have a friend and you say, Joe was wearing clothes today, what would that seem to imply? Joe doesn't usually wear clothes. I've never met anyone who someone said, yeah, he was wearing clothes. It's just a given, right? This is, so this is, not only had he been in the tombs, howling, cutting himself, he had been naked, but he's clothed and he's in his sound mind, sane mind. The only sane man in town. And so sometimes Christian ethics is going to be about a perspective, a sanity, a soundness that comes through our encounter with Christ. It is baptismal that then orients us differently. This is me trying to draw on my iPad because I don't know how to make real images. So this is as good as it gets. 
When you look at Paul's epistles, Paul likes to use this phrase, and he uses it especially in Philippians, and Christo, in Christ. And he puts all sorts of things in Christ. Our election that God has chosen us, which is comfort in Christ. Justification that we are declared not guilty in Christ. Redemption that we have been bought and won uh, with his innocent precious blood in Christ. Forgiveness. What does forgiveness mean? A fellow God lets go. Um, I, I feel bad because you a lot of you hear these stories, but I, I'm just going to keep telling. I don't know. I got like one story for each thing. And I asked the provost, and I don't get paid more if I come up with more stories. So I'm just going to stick with the ones I have. But, um, but this is, uh, I remember in high school watching a video we were watching on how they would catch monkeys in Africa and just laughing like crazy at them catching these monkeys. And then it got real dark. They beat them over their heads and like cooked them. Or, I don't know. I mean, it got traumatic. But the beginning part, what I was laughing at is this is how they would catch them. They put shiny things in jars. And the monkeys would grab the shiny things and couldn't get their hands out of the jars. And you think, you stupid monkeys. But then you have kids. And almost every one of my kids at some point has ran into the room panicked with their hands stuck in something. And I've said, well, let go. And they say, no, I want it. And I'll have to say, well, we'll take you to the hospital and get your arm cut off then. But all of us do this, right? We all get the things we grab onto and we don't want to let go of. Or we grab onto other sins when they've wronged us and we don't want to let go of. And so there was more than once in the parish that I had to say to members, are you going to let someone else's sins take you to hell? Are you going to hold on to those things right to hell? God lets go of them. He's not going to hold them against us. How in Christ? How did he accomplish this? By his cross and his tomb. But you can't go to his cross. You can't go to his tomb. We don't even know for sure which one. What? I always hear people go to Israel and they see this. It might be that place, right? It could be. I don't know. I, I'm tempted sometimes to just go and open one of Jesus' tombs somewhere too. You know? But this is, you, we don't know for sure. Um, I can't go to the cross, but the cross can come to me. And how does that take place? This is a famous painting by Lucas Kronick um, in the Stadtkirche of the City Church in Wittenberg. It comes to us through the preaching of Christ. It comes to us through a preacher. And so what are we? We are receptive. We are passive. Faith comes through hearing. So God comes to us in the means of grace. And so this altarpiece has baptism, the Lord's Supper, and absolution. This gets delivered to us through the gospel. God sends a preacher God sends bread and wine and water, and with it, he gives us Jesus himself, which is where we draw our life and have our being. Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And so we, we live by receiving, and only when we have received can we then give. Right? What do you have that you weren't given is a scriptural refrain oftentimes. Uh, and so... When we talk about the means of grace, all of our salvation is won by Christ, but it is delivered to us through word and sacrament, which is what you're here for, hopefully at least a little bit. Of t There's no sacrament that I know about, unless we're springing something on someone, but, uh, um, but through the means of grace. <clears throat> when we talk about ethics and when we're talking with Christian theology then, it's important that we recognize that there's two kinds of righteousness that we can talk about. We can talk about my righteous quorum Deo before God. You can impress your friends if you want to use that later. Quorum Deo means 
before God, just working in the conversation, you know, watching Netflix or something, you know, and say, that reminds me of Quorum Dale. You know, start a band, <laughs> a nice band name, right? Um, my righteousness before God is entirely God to me. It is given to me and it is received. But there is also now a civic righteousness. And I, I sometimes ask students if you, if you got these on your report cards anymore. We used to get uh, academic grade and then a citizenship grade. Right? And citizenship was based on how much of a pain in the backside of our teacher we were. And I won't tell you where my citizen grade, citizenship grade tended to fall at that point. I wasn't Lutheran yet, so my sins only counted half. But, um, but right, the idea was, to what extent are we able to live horizontally and get along? And there is a thing, too, then, that the non-Christian can be very civically righteous. In fact, sometimes right, you have a neighbor, a non-Christian neighbor, who's much easier to get along with than the Christian neighbor. They have civic righteousness. This has been called, our confessors call them in the Lutheran Church, the righteousness of the philosophers. Right? Good citizenship. But divine righteousness, my standing before God, that is only received. Coramundo just means in the sight of the world. Um, we would agree that there are people in the world that we would just say, he or she is a good person. We don't necessarily mean they're going to heaven, but they're a good person. Right? Um, so, this is a very bad drawing I'm about to show you, but it's one that I use in class, and uh, I actually drew it much better to scale than I normally do on the board. So, um, the church I used to serve in Michigan was on a road uh, that had a big crown in it. Uh, they finally fixed it, but in the winter it would ice over, and on both sides they had big ditches until you got, there was a pond. Dow would mine it out for, for clay for years for makeup. And then their little carts were getting stuck down there. It got too deep. They were going to turn it into the landfill, which meant we were about to be the church on the landfill. Thankfully, there were some neighbors who had money and went to court and won the right to have it become a lake or a pond, right? And so uh, there was tree farm around us, and they used it for irrigation. But there were many cases of people who would slide off that road into the ditch when it was icy. So imagine with me Edith is driving to church because she loves Jesus and Pastor Johnston, right? She wants to hear a great sermon. And uh, she would have been going across town if that were true. She just feels she should go to church. And she's going down the road, and she starts sliding off, and she goes into the pond. It doesn't look very big there. But, and the, the dog is almost as big as the car, so it's still not great scale. But she goes in, and Edith is going to drown. Edith is going to die. And Joe Unbeliever jumps in and saves Edith. Now, here's a hint. His name's Joe Unbeliever because he's an unbeliever, right? Did Joe Unbeliever do a good work? Coramundo, civic righteousness? Absolutely. Give him a medal. He saved Edith. Edith is grateful. But Joe Unbeliever is not necessarily not going to heaven because of that work. Hopefully, Edith, right, invites him to church. He can bring his dog, right? Um... But that righteousness is only received. So sometimes when we're talking about ethics, we need to talk about what kind of righteousness are we talking about. And there is a place for civic righteousness for the Christian as well. Aristotle has a point when he says, it's a good thing to work at being virtuous. This is how we develop good habits, isn't it? Those of you who play sports, uh, you didn't learn how to shoot a layup by never practicing it. 
Those of you who play music, you didn't just get on the piano and all of a sudden you're Beethoven. Beethoven, not Beethoven. Um, the, uh, right, there's things we work at. But where we want to be careful is what Aristotle in his ethics cannot offer is the righteousness of Christ. This is the, he, he can offer virtue, but he can't offer salvation. So, I don't even know what time I started at, but how far in do you think I am? You've got 30 more minutes at least. Oh, I don't need that long, I don't think. All right. Okay. That's fine. I got, no, I'll just start making stuff up. All right, I can do that. The other day in Pauline Epistles, we were talking about zebras fighting hippos. We can go back to that if that's more interesting. Or a lion. I think it was a lion versus hippos, but because uh, hippos, a student shared with me, kill more people than any other animal in Africa. So then I was talking about how my theory is, is that hippos look like animals you should be able to touch, right? Don't they? If you were at SeaWorld, you would think, but they, but they eat people. I don't know if SeaWorld has hippos, but maybe. But it turns out they eat people. So I'm guessing a lot of people get eaten by hippos because they see them and they think, I should touch that, right? And, then, uh, and they're not even meat eaters. They're not going to, they don't want nutrients. They're not getting their macros. They're just going to kill you. But all right. See, I killed some time. Hippos. Now think about that. Um, let's see if these videos work. Uh, sometimes when we talk about sanctification, sanctification is a word that can mean a lot of things. It can be sanctification can be all that involves my salvation. Sanctification can also be how I grow in my Christian life. I've been set aside for Christian living. This is how I like to teach sanctification. We sometimes picture sanctification as just every day is one step in front of the other. But Paul uses the picture of walking for sanctification again and again. And do you remember how you learned to walk? Were you just crawling and then one day you just popped up and you're strutting, you know, you're like grandma power walking at the mall? No, you were like a little drunkard, weren't you? And mom and dad had to hide everything pointy because you're stumbling. You're going to go down. It's like, you know, Mayfield McGregor. Uh, is this a TKO? What happens? And sometimes, right, you veer, you're backwards, but you learn to walk. Uh, and so that sometimes is the Christian life, too. Look at Peter in the Gospels, two steps forward, three steps back sometimes. And so I like to picture it. First, uh, there's this one. And so this guy, he's a Christian, and he is going to uh, do his level best to be sanctified. How do I click on this on this? This is... No, I think I just turned that off. Now it's back. Maybe this ain't going to work. I don't even know how to use computers. All right, we're going to try this. Let's see if I can. Well, the mouse ain't working. All right, I'm just going to leave. Is it moving up there? Yes. Ah, well, no one tells me this. Was it moving before? Yeah. Oh, man. This is. Well, I can't. See. How do I see it now? You got a clue, Andrew? Save me, not in a Jesus way, but like just with this. <laughs> How do I get it to see up there again or to see it here? I can't see the mouse thing when I move. Oh, you got... You're doing... This is what reminds me of when Paul went to Thessalonica and forgot his flash drive. Okay. Oh, there it is. Okay. 
I want to get to six. Nine, I think. One more. Oh, keep going. Yeah, I was wrong. There we go. All right, here's the first one. This is sanctification in general, if you can see it. In progress, right? He's making progress slowly, but, uh, but surely. Now, this is the real Lutheran, this guy. I like this guy right here. He understands the gospel, and we'll see if I can get that now. He's going to just uh, let go and let God. This, uh, right? And so uh, what we're after with that is that when we're talking sanctification, some people will give the impression that Christ now has justified you, and now your sanctification is basically for you to accomplish and you to do. And the confessions, the Lutheran confessions say, we do, in a sense, cooperate in our sanctification, but not like two oxen pulling a horse, where they each are going to pull equally, Right? God is still doing the majority of the work through us. As Christ dwells in us, he lives through us. And so I like to use the picture. Um, when we first moved to Milwaukee, I got one of these like hipper, hippie like grandpa real mowers, you know, where they don't use gas, whatever I thought, I'm going to be all green. Because we just got a little postage stamp lawn. And I figured out those do not work well if you don't mow your lawn like every five days. And so I would go out and you have to just keep going like this and right, get frustrated. And then sometimes my youngest would come out and she'd say, well, Dad, can I help? And everything in me wanted to say no, but I knew she wanted to help, right? So it took twice as long and an extra PBR, but you'd get done mowing the lawn. And uh, when you're finally done, she would say to me, Dad, look, I mowed the lawn. And what would I say? I'm not that bad a father. I'd say, yes, you did. Now, if anything, I could have done the task better just myself. There's nothing that God couldn't accomplish himself just fine apart from us. But he chooses to work with us, even in our weaknesses, even in our great weaknesses, for the good of our neighbor. And in that, he also graces us through that, that we can even learn to delight in service, right? To take joy in service, to learn to, to want to serve more and more through the serving he does through us. But it's still God working through us in faith, which brings us to this teaching, um, the simul, which means, uh, simul justus and peccator just means you're at the same time righteous, just, and a sinner. This usually just comes into, pastors will say, we're sinner saints. Uh, why does it flip-flop when we say sinner saints? I don't know for sure, but I think probably because saint is the major thing that denotes us in Christ. But what this means is very important for the Christian. It means you'll never progress beyond your need for Christ. The Christian life is not become, uh, becoming less dependent upon God, but learning to become utterly dependent upon God and to rejoice in it. Um, to recognize that God is in control. To be able to pray, as Jesus himself did, thy will be done. Um, and so this is going to be important for understanding the Christian life because sometimes otherwise we start to think that Christianity is about never sinning again. No, Christianity is about struggling with sin, that's true. But what's the difference? 
When I'm struggling against sin, I oftentimes think I must have weak faith or I wouldn't be tempted. But the fact is, it's precisely when I am struggling with sin that my faith is most active, that God is most at work. So sometimes people would come into my office as a pastor and say, Pastor, right, you're going to think so much less of me before they were confessing something. And I would always think, no, why is no one else concerned about their sin? Everybody else just thinks they're killing it in the Christian life, like nothing's weighing on them. I'm struggling. What's going on? And so recognizing that as we seek to live ethically as Christians and to serve, it will be a struggle. So I said before that we'll want to spontaneously do good works. But the old man in me, the old Adam, is still not going to want to and sometimes kick and scream. And so sometimes on Sunday morning, I'm going to know, I'm going to want to go to church to hear the gospel. But my old man's also going to want to sleep in. And so I'm going to have to say, you know, God, he's appropriate. What would be a safe way to say what I... You know, whatever, old Adam, I'm not going to do what you want. <clears throat> that took me a long time to filter out. Um, you know, <clears throat> I, I sometimes need to, dra- to drag the old Adam along. Right? So sometimes it's going to be a struggle. And when you're struggling, don't think your faith is gone. It's active. It's living. So Paul says, so I find St. Paul, apostle, probably greatest missionary ever, Christian dude, right, says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And uh, if you ever get emails from me, there's German on the bottom. And this is the German because Luther says it better, right? Um, some things German doesn't say better. Some, some things it does say better, right? And so he, he nails it on this one. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So there will be this struggle. There are some uh, Christian groups that will deny that St. Paul is talking about himself here. Because how could St. Paul struggle with sin like that? Well, what's Romans 6 about, Emma, you know? It's about baptism. And Romans 7 is describing the baptismal life then. And Paul is sharing his own struggle because he knows when we are honest, it's our struggle too. He didn't have to hide it. He didn't have to pretend his righteousness was all about how great he was and how he didn't sin. He knew that was contrary to his message. He needed Christ just as much after the Christian life had started as he needed Christ before. As we uh, live out our Christian life, then, we do so in two kingdoms or realms or spheres. We serve in two ways. Um, Even pastors serve in two kingdoms. Now, what are the kingdoms? We've got church and state. Um, Jesus here before Pilate. How, How does a pastor serve the state? What are some things the pastor does where he's an agent of the state? What's a big one? Marriage. Marriage, yeah. And this has led to some issues in, in, right, in our society lately about legality of things. When I did a marriage, I was not only representing the church, but I signed the marriage certificate as an agent of the state. The first wedding I did, I forgot to do that. And so I had to go back to the reception and tell them to keep their hands off them yet, off each other yet, and have them sign that piece of paper so Uncle Sam could tax them right, right? Um, 
this is both church and state. Um, the church oftentimes will carry out charities or operate schools in which the state has a vested interest. So there's things that we do at a church school that are purely church, but we, there's also things we do that are state. And every Christian lives in both, too. And so we can sing, heaven is my home, but this is also where I live now, too. And so as we strive to live as Christians, we're going to serve in two realms. Um, and both, both types of service are important. The police officer, the governor, the whatever, our serving God, our serving in divinely established ways. And so Paul says, be subject to the governing authorities. And these were not governing authorities that were friendly towards Paul. Right? Paul was persecuted and then put to, to death by these governing authorities. But pay them what you owe them, taxes, honor, whatever the case may be. But he also says the governing authorities have some things expected of them. They are to reward good and punish evil. And so as Christians, we can also strive to elect, to counsel, to encourage good government. And in fact, in the United States, we have a right to demand good government built into our Constitution, right? Um, and even to vote people in or out based on how well we think they are governing. And so Christianity is not withdrawal from the secular realm, but it is engagement and service in it as well. What governs the secular realm? What governs the governing authorities? Well, we govern based on reason and natural law. Right? We don't govern based on scripture. So let's say I were going to argue some issue that my faith, right, form helps me shape my opinion on this issue, but let's say I'm elected to office and I'm going to argue it in the State House or at Capitol Hill. I'm going to make arguments because they need to be common to everyone, not everyone shares my faith, based in reason or natural law. So if, for instance, you know, there's some law um, that's about should it be illegal to steal. I'm trying to pick one that's not controversial. Right? I'm not going to argue as a state senator or whatever that we shouldn't steal because uh, the Seventh Commandment says so. I'm going to say based on reason, society will not be served well if everyone's stealing from each other. Right? It's going to lead to more crime, uh, retribution. Um, it's going to discourage honest labor if you can just get things right. I'm going to make reason and natural law arguments. Natural law argument for that would be no culture has ever encouraged stealing. Maybe you can find one, but I don't know of any that has said steal. Even thieves don't like stealing if it's from them, right? Um, so uh, we live then in two kingdoms or two spheres as we do this. As we wrestle with ethics as Christians, we have to realize there's things where God has spoken and where God hasn't spoken. So far as stealing for me, whether it's right or wrong to steal, as a Christian, it's already been answered for me because God says so, do not steal. But there's other areas where God has not revealed things to me. I remember, um, oh, I'm stuck to that. Uh, I used to, I, I mean, I know it's hard to believe now, but I used to go to the Y and work out every day when I was in Saginaw. And I did cardio then because I still cared about myself. And um, I would, the, the Y had this like uh, cardio room at the big window so everybody could see in. And so, you know, I would go and do my elliptical thing and, you know, I don't know, run away from death. And uh, there was this girl, college age, who, you know, every day I would go, she would be like, oh, another machine down towards me. 
And I thought, you know, this, what's going on here? This, this is odd, right? And I, I mean, I wasn't thinking she was interested in me. I, look at me, I, that's that, an issue. Um, but, I, but I figured there's something there, what's going on. And then one day she, she ends up next to me and she said, are you a pastor? And uh, I said, yeah, because I had members there who would say, oh, pastor, you know, whatever else. And, uh, um, and she said, she starts crying. We're the only two people in this cardio room. And I'm like, great, this looks awesome. Right? I'm in the cardio room next to this girl who's bawling. What is it? What kind of jerk do I look like? And I, so I'm like, okay, well, why are you crying? Right? And this is, um, she said, well, God wants me to be a nurse, but I'm failing my nursing classes. I said, well, are you passing your other classes? And she said, well, yeah, I'm doing really well. And I said, well, uh, Maybe God doesn't want you to be a nurse. But she had gone to a church where someone important in that church had told her that God told them she was supposed to be a nurse. Right? Now, I'm not discounting, I'm not saying God can't do what he wants to do. But when it comes to our careers, for instance, God hasn't necessarily said you have to be this or that. There's going to come times where we have to simply look at our gifts and say, what am I well suited to? I could not be a mathematics professor. I took math through my junior year of high school, and I dropped it before I finished, right? This is not my, I married an accountant wisely. Um, this is not my gift. Um, sometimes you might, you might find yourself with two decisions. You have to wrestle, you have to make one. Well, which one is right? Sometimes I would have people come to me and say, I got a job offer. Which job does God want for me, Pastor? And I'd have to say, well, there's no Bible verse, but let's talk about the jobs. And sometimes they said, this one will give me more time with my family. This one seems to, to suit my interests better. And we talk it out, and at the end of the day, I, I would have to say, I can't tell you which one to take, but it sounds like there's lots to consider. There's ethical issues that are like that, too. Um, Think of the civil realm. There's areas where Christians can, in good conscience, disagree on political things. Take gun control as an issue. Jesus did not speak to gun control or to guns, right? Um, take tax code. Jesus did not say, thou shalt have trickle-down economics. Um, uh, you know, um, well, I'm not going to... I'll start giving examples, and then I'll get myself in trouble, so... I'm going to stick with those, right? There's areas where in good conscience, Christians coming from very different places can disagree on those. But they still have a responsibility to be able to understand the other person's position and to wrestle with those uh, issues with their neighbor in mind. So you could have gun control where some person says we should have more gun control to protect my neighbor, and others might say we shouldn't have gun control so my neighbor can protect himself, no, this is for another day, and I, I can't take another gun control debate right now. It's right. Everybody's an authority on Facebook and Twitter and whatever. Now they've all, you know. So, I mean, let's none of us. Let's none of us are going to shoot each other. That's right. We're all going to be good. So there's no reason we got to get into it right now. This is all. But these are areas where there can be disagreement. Um, think of someone's near, uh, coming towards the end of their life. And maybe a, a pastor has a, a family who's had um, a loved one on life support for a long time. And that loved one is terminal. The doctors have said there's not much else we can do. 
how long do you leave that person on life support now? Now, you don't intervene and take their life. That would be active euthanasia. But can you allow nature to take its course? There's not a set answer of when the family needs to decide that or what they should decide. But there's principles that God would have us wrestle with. So we have this, the hidden and revealed God. And it's oftentimes that the revealed God is closest to us in those times when he seems hidden. Um, but he seems far away because we would just like the answer. All right, two slides to go. Vocation. This is a word if you're at WLC you hear all the time. What is vocation? Vocation is calling. German for vocation is beruf. And it sounds like what it is. Beruf, 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 the dog barking. It's calling. Hey, hey, hey. And um, vocation is what God calls us into as ways to serve our neighbor. Um, growing up in the Roman church, when people would talk about, have you thought about vocations, they meant holy orders, becoming a priest or a nun. Luther says, no, everyone has a vocation. And so God comes and works through every single individual person for the benefit of their neighbor. So the truck driver serves his neighbor by getting his load from point A to point B. Um, you know, this is where sometimes people, it really upsets me, people will say, oh, you don't want to end up flipping burgers. <clears throat> Practically speaking, the person flipping burgers probably serves more neighbors better than I do. He feeds people, but he doesn't make as much, or it's not as glorious. But what an unchristian observation to make. But he's serving his neighbor in a wonderful way. Now, that doesn't mean I have to want to flip burgers or you have to want to. I did flip burgers. For you. I liked it. I liked working in restaurants. Um, but the fact is, there's various vocations. And the example I like to use, um, Luther, uh, well, he has a story here. He mentions washing diapers. But there's another place that I haven't been able to find it. But Luther gets really upset because some guys were making fun of another guy for helping out around the house. And they were calling him a girly man. I think it was Frauenmenschen or something in German. You know, ooh, you're Frauenmenschen. You help around the house. But this is, um, and uh, Luther says, no, this father should be commended for helping around in the house. And he uses this illustration of changing diapers. And uh, if you ever change a diaper, it doesn't uh, seem like a particularly fulfilling thing to do. Um, in, in fact, uh, sometimes it, right, you just want to wait it out. <clears throat> Hope someone else notices. And so picture this, Father. And uh, if I ever am in charge of our synodical magazine, this is going to be on the cover page. Full page interview inside. Think of this father who changes his child's diapers. And they interview him. And they say, how did you do this great work for God? And he says, well, I smelled something. And my wife wasn't home. And they just have a picture of him triumphant holding up this soiled diaper. But Luther says, what a great work for his neighbor he has done. Do we always think that way? Do we look at our works from God's perspectives, right? This is... Um, Vocation is how God serves to choose. To, God chooses to serve others through me. Now, unbelievers have what we call stations. God uses them also, but we call it what the Christian has a vocation because God, in His grace, allows the Christian to see 
that he is using him, to recognize it and then delight in it. And so the Christian plumber doesn't necessarily have some super Christian plumber move for, you know, unclogging a sink. But the Christian plumber can rejoice that God loves him so much that not only does he pay him for doing plumbing, but he allows him to serve his neighbor so that they have running water and sanitation and things like this. And so when it comes to our life with Christian ethics, um, it is going to be rooted in the fact that God uses us as mass. And the picture here is in antiquity when you would act you would have one actor playing many parts and he would just come out with different masks, right? You know, now I'm so-and-so. And oftentimes they're all male actors, so then they would be a female mask and they, oh, I'm Susie, you know, whatever. Like, I don't know. Um, but this mask, I'm playing a part that God comes and uses your face and your hands and your feet to bring blessings to others. Um, that brings us, I mentioned to the, the podcast we have, and we, we call it Let the Bird Fly. It's from a, uh, Psalm 124 in a Luther hymn. Um, some people have asked if it's a euphemism, and we'll, we'll get on from that. Um, it, uh, but um, it, uh, there's a great, great quote from a theologian that, uh, that he says, once everything's been done for us, what is left? And he says to let the bird fly. And so with Christian ethics, we get to, uh, to live in a world that's given back to us. What is the world apart from faith? It's where I am supposed to find my meaning, achieve my, my afterlife, my identity, my purpose. And so the world becomes filled with idols and filled with things that cannot do what we ask of them. They can't help but fail us. And so you might have the best meal ever, but you'll never be complete simply because of that. And what, is, what does God do ethically that's different? He justifies us, and he says, no, you already have an afterlife, and you already have an identity, and you have a purpose, and I'm going to use you. And so now the world is given back as gift, and you don't need it to be idle. You don't need to look for it for what it can't give. So you can have that best meal and just enjoy it and not worry about, well, will I ever have a meal that good again? Just enjoy the meal. And you don't have to look to your boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse to make you ultimately happy. What an unfair thing to do to them. You can rather just see them as a gift from God and want to serve them as a gift from God. You don't have to expect your, di your diploma or your uh, whatever certificate to finally make you what you want it to be. Because those things will continuously depart. I, I have always been the person who thinks, once I do that, then I'll be happy. Once I graduate high school, then I'll be happy. Once I graduate college, then I'll be happy. And I did like that like six times because I like school. Once I get my PhD, then I'll be happy. Once I get married, then I'll be happy. Once I have one kid, two kid, three kid, four kid, five kid, minivan's full, let's try something else. <clears throat> right? But what an unfair thing to look to all these things and people to ask them to give what they can't. And what a wonderful freedom, an ethical freedom, to let every day be Christmas Day and enjoy them for what they are. And so even on that day where you don't want to be at your job and you're tired and this you know, person won't stop bugging you, to rejoice with it as a gift that it not only helps you support yourself, but God's going to use even that, that God's going to rejoice even in your patience and that for others. Not so that you can get to heaven, but because you're going to heaven. Not so that God will love you, but because God already loves you. And then, yes, we spend a ton of time in ethics discussing all kinds of other thoughts 
and then we can get into bioethics and business ethics and this, uh, sports ethics, right? All of that. But for the Christian, if we don't get this right, everything else is a lost cause. Um, so that's all I've got. And I don't know, did I go over or did I not go long enough? Who's keeping time Ten here? minutes for questions. Anybody got something for Dr. Johnson? Pastor Thompson. Oh, he's got a notepad. It's going to be a good one, or you have multiple. Just one. How can we access that podcast that you're talking about? Oh, letthebirdfly.com is the website. And it's oftentimes not very good. Um, sometimes we're talking about hippos fighting lions. Um, but usually it's something about history or theology or philosophy. Um, yeah. Anything else? Not all at once. I'm just joking. All right. Well, I don't have anything more to say unless we do want to pursue the whole hippo thing more. Um, feel free, if you have interesting hippo information, to tell me afterwards. Hippos versus crocodiles is also a very interesting question. Um, but, uh, but otherwise, that's what I have on ethics, and I thank you for the opportunity to be with you today.